Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Open up your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 1 to 7. And uh, the last time we were in Romans was back in November. And this is a propitious, a, an auspicious moment in the book of Romans, as you will see. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried, we who have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead, Through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans begins with this uh, rhetorical question, a question that's asked so that he can answer it, all right? And the question is this, what shall we say then? Well, the word then points back to what he's just been saying. Given this, what shall we say then? And then he proposes something that we should say then. Given this, how about if we say, let's sin so that grace may abound. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? The answer is about as intense as the Apostle Paul ever gets. The answer is, may it never be, God forbid. Okay? Now, it would behoove us to figure out where the question came from. What was it that the Apostle Paul was saying that would cause people to come to the conclusion that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, the Apostle Paul's last words before the words we read this morning were these. Listen to them. He had just gotten done saying the law came in so that the transgression would increase. So the reason God gave the law is so that there would be more sin, so that there would be more violating of the law. The law is given so that transgression, sin, guilt will increase. God gave us the law so that our guilt and our sin would increase, all right? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there seems to be a connection between the giving of the law so that sin would increase, so that grace would increase. There's a progression. The law, sin increases, grace increases. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now note the emphasis on grace here. On God's gifts to us that we have not merited. 
and do not deserve, grace abounded all the more. Grace would reign to eternal life. Grace would abound, grace would reign. It's often been said that the preaching of the gospel never is true preaching of the gospel until someone says, let's send that grace be about. Different people attribute that to different preachers, but you don't have to attribute it to any preacher. It's right here, all right? He has preached the gospel in the first five chapters of Romans, and when he gets done preaching the gospel, he says, okay now, should we sin that grace may abound? This is the logical illogical, logical, this is the reasonable, this is the normal, this is the most constant result of preaching the gospel. It's the result on the part of moralists, legalists, because they say, oh, the gospel's ridiculous, you know? Come on, it can't be free. What kind of godless, presumptuous, Uh, careless person are you? And this is always the response of Roman Catholics to the preaching of the gospel. Um, It just doesn't seem possible that we don't have to contribute to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so all kinds of ways of saying that Christ saves us and we save ourselves. And evangelicals fall into that too because it's hardly possible to stay away. So the response of a legalist, of a moralist, of a self-righteous person is to respond to this and to say, well, it's ridiculous. You know, yes, Jesus, but Jesus and. Yes, Jesus, but Jesus and, okay? But there's something else that's just as evil, and that is the antinomian. Namas, law, anti-law. The church has always had people who use the grace of God as a means of saying that we are not under law, that the law has no bearing on us, that there's no need for us to know the law, that certainly our pastors shouldn't preach the law, that if anybody ever speaks of the sin of something, we immediately say to them, you're a moralist. Or if you're Tim Keller, you say, you're the older brother. Okay? And so here we are in between the moralist and the legalist saying, no, you have to contribute something. And the antinomian who's saying, don't you dare speak of sin. Don't you dare condemn anybody. Don't you dare preach the law because if you do, you're violating the grace of God. And you know the old saying, betwixt the two of them, they lick the platter clean. All right? This is where we're headed. We're headed into a section of Romans where the Apostle Paul is going to show us again and again. You remember how much he showed us the doctrine of justification? Again and again and again and again. Well, now he's going to go back and he's going to say justification so that we are sanctified. Justification so that we perform the works that God has appointed for us to, to do justification so that we die to our sin and become like Jesus. Okay? And you're right at the pivot point in the book of Romans where we're moving from the doctrine of, what is it? Justification to the doctrine of, and I'll have to say this one for you because none of you have ever heard the word before. Sanctification. Sanctification. 
Do you remember me telling you that Mary Lee and I grew up in a church with a pastor who every single Sunday, it didn't matter what the text was in the Bible, every single Sunday the sermon was on John 3.16. You remember me telling you this? If it was, you know, I, I have gone seeking my father's donkeys. If the text was, uh, go thou and do likewise. If the text was, uh, you know, she, she pulled water from the well for, for the sheep. It didn't matter what the text was. The text was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then if you went in and you had a pastoral problem of sin that you wanted to confess to your pastor and ask him to help you, uh, he would say, well, have you read John 3.16? And you'd say, yes. Well, you need to give your life to Jesus. And so I said to him, I did that. Well, you need to do it, like, really? And I said to him, I've done it like nine or ten times. Because, of course, I went to a Christian school. And everybody, every text of Scripture was John 3.16. And it was like, give your heart to Jesus. I give my heart to Jesus and really mean it this time. Would you baptize me again? And I remember sitting in the pews, and I remember thinking to myself, something's wrong with me. And I once heard a word, and the word is sanctification, but I have no clue what it is. Could somebody please tell me about sanctification? Because I have sin, and I'm a Christian, and I have sin, and I want to be done with my sin. And I never, ever, ever heard anything about sanctification except at home, and my father would speak cryptically, and he would say, the holiness without which no man will see God. And that always made me realize sanctification was important. And then he would say to me, the heart is deceitful, Tim, above all things, and desperately wicked, who can know it? And I'd think, he's speaking to me, and I'm a Christian. And then he would say to me, uh, Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So I'd be hearing about sanctification at home, but not in any systematic way. Just these little darts, you know, that came into you and made you feel that you were every bit the scoundrel as, as you, you were convincing your heart you were, your father saw, you know. And then my mother was always slapping me. Bam, 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 Tim! Bam, bam, bam. My father, heart's desperately wicked, you know. And would somebody tell me about sanctification? How is this supposed to work? I plead guilty. But what am I supposed to do with my sin? Okay. Are you all with me? An awful lot of the church responds to this dilemma, this predicament we're all in, by singing Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all our sin. And when they get done singing it, then they sing, Wonderful grace of Jesus. And when they get done singing that, they sing, 
Amazing grace, how sweet. And then when they get done singing, you know, Spurgeon said, my how a harp of 10,000 strings can harp on one string so long. All the hymns, the scripture texts, the sermons, the teachings, everything is John 3.16. And grace does what? It abounds, except not. There's a law of diminishing returns. When grace suppresses sanctification and holiness, grace is no longer grace. And all of you have that sense in listening to much of the preaching today, reading the books, listening to the music. It's awful. The music is the worst part of it, although it can't be worse than the preaching. But it's like everybody's straining to have passion, right? Right? Everything's about having passion today. And what we all as Christians want to have passion about is grace. You know, and so people will sing about grace. And it'll go on and on and on and on and on. And we get, and this is a word you should know because the reason you don't have passion today, you know, you're always talking about being passionate about clipping your fingernails, right? I mean, that's how mundane our passion is now. I have a real passion about heart-shaped medallions. You know, I have a real passion about sound treatments. I have a real passion about, you know, the color content of my paper. I have a real passion about, you know, smartphones. You know, everybody has a passion about it. Well, the reason that we don't have passion, and we know we don't have it because we're always talking about how we have passion. Generally, we talk about the things we don't have. The reason we don't have passion is that we're what? Come on, what is that? It's a J. Now, does anybody want to fill it in? We're jaded. Does this make sense to you? We're jaded. What is jaded? Well, <clears throat> I have experience in this. Specifically with briars and haagen I think it took me 25 years, but I did finally get tired of mint chocolate chip briars. <laughs> I think it was 25 years. I, I'm working hard on, 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 on haagen butter pecan now. I don't know if you're like me, but I get in habits of eating where I just want to eat the same dish over and over and over again because it's so good, okay? Now, with food, it has its natural limitations. God has created us in such a way that with food, generally what we want to eat is what is good for us. And so, have you ever noticed you go outside in the winter, maybe you get to fly to Florida. Have you ever noticed what you do when you get outside of the airport? You ever notice this? You get outside of the airport, it's winter, and what? Y'all know, the sun! It's like your pores are like, yes! <laughs> you know, I mean, it's unbelievable how hungry you are for the sun in the middle of the winter. This is the way God makes us. We need the sun. But then you think, could there ever be a day 
when I won't want the sun. And it's amazing how quickly it comes in the summer where you're jaded. You don't want any more sun. Listen, this is what we've done to grace. The church has so, so monotoned itself. It's, 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 it's fixated on grace, and it's gotten to the point that grace doesn't mean anything to us anymore. Okay? Because the only grace it's talking about is the grace of justification. Are you all with me? Now, how has this happened? An awful lot of the things that have been wrong, that have been done in the church in the last 50 years, have been done in the name of evangelism. All right? I'll get back to grace in a second. But I noticed when they started coming out with gender-neutered Bibles where they took man and father and all the male brother out of Scripture, it was a big stink. And so Christianity Today thought of itself as being the arbiter of all truth for the evangelical world, right? And so they did a long article in which they had a, an authority with a PhD talk about why this was being done to the Bible and how right it was, and what was used to justify the removal of all these words from Scripture. Absolutely, it was evangelism. It was the gospel. People today won't understand they're included if they're women. And so if we really want to communicate to our culture the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to remove the offense of the language of Scripture. And so the gospel of Jesus requires us to remove father, brother, man from Scripture because they're offensive. Now, can you see, can you be sympathetic to that? I can be sympathetic to that. I think a lot of us, if we were explaining the gospel to people, would, 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 would avoid using the word uh, man to refer to the human race. Probably I'm the only guy in here that says man instead of human or human being or person. All right. If I watch you in your normal life, you're always cutting your language, cutting out truths that you see as extraneous to evangelism and the gospel. All of you do this. All right. And so, why be offended at translators doing this? Well, because they're translating scripture. And if Scripture doesn't anchor us to God's truth with particular words, we're completely unhinged. Do you see this? And so what we have to realize is their motives were good. Their motives were to do evangelism, to preach the gospel. But the method they used was not the right method because every word of God is inspired. We have to have faith for Scripture. We don't approach Scripture because it appears to us to be reasonable. I mean, that's, that's absurd. Nothing in Scripture is reasonable, <laughs> you know, right? Now, I could begin to show you again and again in the last 50 years how this has worked. An obvious example of this is Campus Crusade and Navigators and all the parachurch organizations. They're focused on evangelism. And so what do they do? Well, the first thing they do is get rid of authority. Because authority and evangelism seem to be incompatible. People today aren't going to come to Christ if they're told that God named the race man. So you cut out man, you cut out father, you cut out brother. 
People aren't going to come to Christ if you're taught that you need to be under the authority of elders in a local church. You need to submit to them, right? I mean, who in their right mind is, is going to think that if I become a Christian, it means I have to submit to, to Wayne Huck? Or worse, whoever. <laughs> you understand this. In fact, who in their right mind is going to come to Jesus if it means that immediately you are judged by men who make a decision whether or not they're willing to baptize you? No! I became a Christian. And so in Campus Crusade, I had a, I had a, a woman in the church who, when she became a Christian, what happened? Well, her roommates took them down to Show Walter Fountain and baptized her. All right? No authority. Do you see this? No authority. Inclinations that are pious, and we act on them. Now watch this. If you're not going to have authority, what else are you not going to have when people become a Christian? You're not going to have the sacraments. You're not going to have baptism, and you're not going to have the Lord's Supper, right? This is the reason parachurch organizations never baptized, and they never did the Lord's Supper. Never. Now, why? Well, how on earth do you do baptism in the Lord's Supper without making distinctions between those who are properly the recipients of it and those who aren't? Are you with me? And who would make those decisions? Well, people with authority. But remember, the gospel can't be corrupted by authority. Even though the Bible says, obey those in authority over you, for they keep watch over your souls, submit to them, obey them. This is removed by the parachurch organization because it's thought that if you raise the issue of authority, and if you have to make judgments about people at the sacraments, it's going to be an offense to people. So remove that, and what they always do is, well, well they give it to the church. Well, that's for the church. Sounding as if that's good and that's for the church. But no. <laughs> I've been in that meat grinder. And as a matter of fact, when the church tries to discipline people who become Christians through the parachurch organizations, pity the poor pastor. Now, do you see what I'm doing here? I'm trying to show you that if we fixate on what we call evangelism, what we call grace, what we call the gospel, if we fixate on just the gospel, you know how they'll say, preach the gospel, right? And you think that that's supposed to be enabling, but it's actually telling you, don't preach anything other than John 3, 16. And then you throw out words of Scripture you don't like. You throw out the sacraments. You throw out authority. You throw out the church. You throw out the church officers. Are you all with me? This is what's happening right here in the book of Romans. All the people who have heard the gospel message of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. All those who heard five chapters of the Apostle Paul showing the sin of the Gentiles, which is utterly disgusting, but then showing the sin of his people who had knowledge and Sin the same, which is not just disgusting, but is doubly bad because to whom much is given, much shall be required. And then in Adam we all die. 
right? But in Christ, we are all made alive. This is the gospel. This is justification. Are you with me? And they get it. Now, why do they get it? Well, we all know. The apostle Paul was monomaniacal about justification for the first five chapters. He never stopped showing you, in Adam we all die, in Christ we're all made alive. And it went on and 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 on. Until finally, at the end of chapter 5, he talks about grace abounding. Okay? And then immediately he says what? What then? What then? Should we sin that grace may abound? And now, all of you know that the minute he says that, he's caught you. He has caught you. He's outed you. He's woke you. Because that's what we all do. Every one of us sins that grace may abound. All of us use justification to oppress and silence sanctification. All of us. Okay? And it's wicked, and we're Christians, and we do it, and it's wicked. Now, let me uh, explain to you that we will come back to this text. So don't get uptight about me going on through these verses. This is the pivot of the book of Romans, and I want it to be so firmly fixed in your mind what's going on here so that as we go into sanctification, you don't start whining about where's the grace. The truth is the grace is just as much in the sanctification as it is in the justification. But that's not how we sing and speak of grace. Now, let me give you a couple of examples, all right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Some of you have heard me tell the story of a man who was in the Navigators at IU. And uh, he was at the church I was. He was married. He had some children. And this man came in with his wife to be counseled one day. He had committed adultery. Um, it took me a little bit of time to get a feel for this man. We'd probably met three, four, five times. His wife was brokenhearted, but he seemed to be incapable of any sorrow and of any sympathy to his wife. Okay, do you understand? For me, the most disgusting part of the thing was that this man would not work. His wife worked like a dog to provide for the family, to cook, to clean, to do everything, and this man was a lazy dog. Are you all with me? Any of you know men like this? We don't have any in this church. <laughs> Jody laughed. <laughs> And so I began to think about the fact that he wasn't even apologizing for his adultery, and he was sitting at home while his wife worked. And even though I was 
pretty stupid. Even though I didn't understand parachurch organizations then the way I do now. I could not figure out how week after week I could sit there and have a man whose wife was in tears and he was immune to any contrite broken heartishness. And it drove me bonkers. I fiddled around with this. I fiddled around with that. You know, pastors fiddle, you know, in our counseling. You know, we bounce around. We're like, what on earth is going on here? Doctors are like this, too, when they examine us. You know, they jump from this to this to this. It takes a while to get your sea legs under you, right? And finally, one day, I thought, this man can't be a Christian. You know, I had been accepting the premise that this was a true believer. And all of a sudden, I looked at this guy. I don't remember his name, first or last, don't remember. But I looked at him and I said, you know, let's say his name is Joe. I said, Joe, are you a Christian? And immediately, all of a sudden, there seemed to be an emotion in Joe. And the emotion was righteous indignation. Well, yes! And I said, well, why, what makes you think you're a Christian? And what did Joe do? You all know what he did. He described a, a cathartic, born-again experience emotionally that he had had when he was in college involved with navigators. And he said how he had become a Christian then. And then he gave me that perversion of all things reformed, which is most popular among the Arminians. Which is what? Once saved, always saved. You know, I always get, what? You know, are you serious? You're an Arminian, you're telling me once saved? I don't get it. All right. I don't know if he was Arminian or Reformed. That was probably my failure in the counseling. I didn't start by saying, are you Reformed or Arminian? <laughs> it's a joke. And so I listened to him describe this religious experience, and I had a lot of empathy for it because I've had similar experiences. And sometimes some of those experiences are the only things I hang to when I see my sinfulness, you know? And he got done describing it, and I had this awareness that there was nothing in the previous 15 years. He never mentioned anything except his born-again experience. And I said, well, what has happened since then? Well, it was obvious what had happened since then. It was an utter, constant train wreck. And I said to him, dude, you, you can't talk about something that happened 15 years ago and then jump to the present and say, that's why you know you're a Christian. What did I want to hear from him? What I wanted to hear from him was something that gave life to our Lord's rule, which is, by their fruit you shall know them. God does not save us to insensitivity to sin, to being jaded, to singing about our conversion experience 15, 30, and 45 years ago, God saves us to holiness. God says, without holiness, no man will see God.
And there was no indication of holiness in this man. In fact, everything that you saw in him was utterly disgusting spiritually. A man can't cry over his harm to his wife? Are you kidding me? And so I looked at him, and I said, Joe, I'm sorry, but I have to tell you that there is not one thing in you that indicates to me that God has justified you, that you are regenerate. And guess what? All of a sudden, you know, it was like I had violated every rule of the ministry. It was like my whole calling was to constantly say peace, peace, where there was no peace. His wife had no peace. You understand that this man was sinning that grace may abound. He was constantly telling himself that he was saved. And isn't it wonderful, the grace of Jesus, greater than all our sin. As a matter of fact, he was in a position where the more he sinned, the more there was grace. It was grace, 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 grace. Wasn't this sweet? This is why Kierkegaard says that in the church today, and he was writing about 100 years ago, he says, what we do is we make a big show of giving to God everything he commands, and, and we know he likes nuts. And so what we do is we, get is we get tons and tons and tons of nuts, and we pile them up, and we make a huge show of giving that man the nuts that he loves. But every one of those nuts, the shells, have no meat inside the kernel. It's gone. It's just shells. And Kierkegaard says, this is the church today. We make a show of giving to God what he desires. But we've taken out the meat. And listen, we can't do that. God has created us for good deeds. Do you know what it says in Ephesians? It says this. And this is, should be a verse that you know by heart, okay? I can never get these pages apart. Sorry for licking my fingers, but it's the only way to do it. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for... For what? For good works. Now that's sweet enough as it is, but let me continue. It says, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God saved us for the good works that he has had appointed for us from all eternity. Do you know something? If you struggle with pornography man or woman, it's women now with men. Do you know how to get done with pornography? The way to do it is to work. And you think, oh, there he goes again. He's a works preacher. And I say, well, has singing the wonderful grace of Jesus helped you? No, actually, it hasn't. 
work. Because why? Well, because when you get home after you've done the work that God has appointed for you, you're tired and you can't stay awake. Remember how I talked about how when you walk out of the airport down south in the middle of winter, your skin goes, yes! Guess what? Every fiber of your being, if you're a man, when you get done a hard day's work, every pore in your skin, every muscle, even at night in your dreams, you will take pride in your work. You know what I'm talking about. You have some new job that's repetitive in your muscles. I remember the night after I had spent an entire day going through an apartment building with a heavy hammer just nailing down the subflooring. This is before the day of hammer guns, right? And just boom, 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 boom. And I woke up at night doing what? Boom, 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 boom. And it was a joy to me. It was a joy. Work is a gift from God. Now, all of you right now, you're thinking if you're a musician, muscle memory, right? Listen, work gives us joy. It's so nice to be able to do something that you know God's made you to do. Now, if I take the application of providing for yourself, for your family, and for the poor, stop robbing people, and work so you have something to give to the poor, you know I'm quoting scripture, right? If I use that as an illustration, say at the end of the day you're going to be tired, right? You're all with me, right? Now, what is the antidote to being jaded spiritually about the grace of justification? The antidote is work. But not just work, but works. And they are works that from eternity past, God has set aside for you to do. You have been born again by the Spirit of God to do the works that he has appointed for, for you. Isn't that sweet? Now, what works has God given you to do? Not the works of singing Wonderful Grace of Jesus with the baseline, uh-uh. I mean, that can be a work, yes. I mean, I appreciated singing up here, right? You know, one of the things that is most clear to me in the ministry is that some of the hardest works that are done that do the greatest sanctification in the church are what? Now, you know what I'm going to say. The confession of sin. Is there any joy that we take in the ministry, Wayne, that is as great as the joy of hearing confessions of sin? I mean, it is the most gorgeous thing in the ministry. It scares the snot out of you. Because you see the repercussions in the church, in the community, in the family. But it gives you such joy. Why? Because there's nothing we do that glorifies God as much as naming our sin. Give glory to God. So many of us have been appointed from eternity past to confess our sins. And this is good work. What other works have we been given? We've been given the work of propagating a godly seed, getting pregnant, 
producing children, training them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so that when you're old, you can die and the church will continue because your son, Abe, wants to be a preacher. And he's sitting here in his brother's lap. He's looking at me like this. And I look at him and he goes like this. Hey, 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 hey. People, we must be holy as he is holy. We must give ourselves to sanctification because the Bible says without holiness, without sanctification, no man shall see God. And I know we get weary of the blood and guts of sanctification. I know it. But what did you think it meant to take up your cross and follow Jesus? <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, you know, we went in and were caught by surprise. You know, it wasn't like we weren't warned what it was to be a Christian, right? We knew. We knew through many dangers, toils, and snares. Jesus said, take up your cross. And as we go further into this text, what is the Apostle Paul going to do? He's going to say, dude. He doesn't say dude, really. But he's going to say, dude, to be a Christian is to die. Did you forget that you're dead to sin and alive to righteousness? And so enough with our resistance to the death of sanctification. Do you love God? And you say yes, right? Everybody says yes, right? Then be conformed to the image of his son by sanctification. And that's where we're headed in the book of Romans. Now I want to do one more thing before we end. I want, if, do you have it? Okay. I want to read out loud to you the full chapter on sanctification from our confessional standards. This is a very concise summary of what the Bible says about this process that follows justification. Remember, a Christian desires three things with regard to sin. Justification that it not condemn, Romans 1 to 5. Sanctification that it not... Come on, I've said this to you so many times. Reign, not R-A-I-N, R-E-I-G-N, you know, like our president in the White House. That's a joke, okay? Justification that it not, come on, say it, condemn. Sanctification that it not, and glorification that it not be. Isn't that wonderful? A Christian regards three things with regard to sin. He desires three things with regard to sin. Justification that it not, sanctification that it not, and glorification that it not, that it not be. All right, here it is. They who are effectively called, who are really called, who are really born again, who God has really called them to himself, those who are really called and regenerated, changed, born again, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them are further sanctified, further made holy, really and personally, 
okay? Through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his, in other words, it's by grace and it's by Christ, by his word and spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Dominion destroyed. Remember uh, Owen on, in his volume on indwelling sin? The whole thing is on that text in Romans that talks about the law of sin and death that remains in us as Christians. Okay? Dominion, law. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof... <laughs> any of you laughing? Would you like to describe your lusts as... Several? Okay. Several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? More and more weakened and mortified. I know we all want to just say, I'm done with it forever. But how many of the sins in your life have died that way? Notice it says more and more weakened. Women do not have an expectation that your husband's wandering heart all of a sudden will die. No, it's mortified. It's mortified. Mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened. More and more weakened and mortified, more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man, what? She'll see the Lord. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part. Whence arises from this comes up a continual and irreconcilable war. Now, is that how you feel? Come on, be honest. That is how I see your faces in church. I watch you, I see it in your face. You think, how can this war be right? Something's wrong with me. No, this is sanctification. Okay? Irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. I lied. Uh, I'm out of time, but I have one more point I want to make. Okay? Um, Calvin says this. He says, as we are overwhelmed with a greater burden of sin, nothing is better for us than to provoke the wrath of God by being submerged in the depths of sin and by frequent perpetration of new offenses, for only then shall we experience more abounding grace. And I want to warn you, this is what some people in this church do. Okay? Some people in this church give themselves to depraved sins because they find that when they repent of those depraved sins, their experience of the grace of God is palpable. Okay? And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul says no to. You must not give yourself to sin so that you can feel better about God's grace when you come to the Lord's Supper. Are you with me? That's evil. You should learn to love not simply the raw sense of God's mercy when you confess your sin, but you should learn to love what? Learn to love holiness. Learn to love that one day in your life 
where all of a sudden you go to bed at night and you realize that one day you escaped that lust. Do you understand? Then you're rejoicing in sanctification. You're rejoicing in being conformed to the image of God. All right, let's come to the words table.